Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are bringing you the best minds in functional medicine, and I assure you today is no exception. New Frontiers is able to offer these deeper drill-down conversations with content geared toward the professional audience because we are proudly sponsored by two companies that I use in my practice every day, Metagenics and Biotics Research Corporation. A little bit about Metagenics. Their mission is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit them at metagenics.com. New Frontiers is also proud to be sponsored by Biotics Research Corporation. The foundation of Biotics Research Corporation is innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts and product development, utilizing advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques to develop and produce gluten-free nutritional products of superior quality and effectiveness. The advantages of Biotics Research Vegetable Culture Base include biologically active, whole food, consistent disintegration for proper assimilation, suitability for strict vegetarians, and improved product stability. Biotics research emulsified nutrients represent a more cost-effective means of delivering nutrients than mycelized, dry, or oily preparations and are safely and more completely absorbed. Biotics research provides the best of science and nature. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and it's just my pleasure and honor to be podcasting today with Dr. Moshe Seif. Uh, Dr. Seif is a professor at McGill University, and a little bit of his rather remarkable background. Um, he obtained his PhD from Hebrew, Hebrew University and did a postdoc fellowship in genetics at Harvard Medical School, uh, joined the Department of Psychology and Therapeutics at McGill University in 1989, currently holds the James McGill Professorship and uh, GlaxoSmithKline CIHR Chair in Pharmacology and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Um, very interestingly to, to me and my interest in epigenetics, um, Dr. Safe has really been looking in this world, it, it appears to me to be longer uh, than most. Uh, he, and currently he's the, he's the founding co-director of the Sackler Institute for Epigenetics and Psychobiology at McGill and is a fellow of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research Experience-Based Brain and Biological Development Program. Uh, Dr. Safe founded is the founder of the first pharma to develop epigenetic pharmacology, uh, Methyl Gene Inc., and we'll be sure to talk to him a little bit about that in the first journal in epigenetics, aptly titled Epigenetics. Uh, the SAFE lab has, propo has proposed two decades ago that DNA methylation is a prime therapeutic target in cancer and other diseases and has postulated and provided the first set of evidence that the social environment in early life can alter DNA methylation, launching the emerging field of social epigenetics. You know, just a cursory search on PubMed, I, Dr. SAFE has hundreds of publications and really some of the earliest uh, from the 1980s looking at epigenetics. I saw, I had the honor of actually seeing Dr. Safe present at uh, Jeff Bland's Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute in 2015 and was uh, just really blown away by the depth and breadth of his work um, in epigenetics in both animal and human uh, studies. So again, it's, uh, it's just an honor to have you join New Frontiers today. Dr. Safe, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, let's just, I want to just jump right in. I know, you know, the term epigenetics, I think uh, clinicians are, are hearing and sort of becoming a little bit more familiar with, but can you give me a basic overview of epigenetics and DNA methylation? Epigenetics is a concept that actually was coined by a British scientist uh, in their 40s. And he understood already then as an embryologist that the DNA sequence cannot explain uh, the mystery of development. And specifically how we have one set of DNA molecule and, and we have millions of different cells that have different forms and shapes and pheno what we call phenotypes. Yep. So there must be something between DNA and the phenotype 
that takes the DNA and gives it different interpretations in different contexts. And he called that epigenetics. This idea kind of fell out of favor, it was not of interest um, because uh, the discovery of DNA structure and the sequencing of DNA uh, got us so excited about the gene sequence yep. uh, that we kind of put aside the fact that something else happens to the genes. Actually, in the early 40s, another scientist, the United States, discovered that DNA is not just the four letters that we all know, GATC, mm -hmm. but that there is a minor base, a DNA, a methylated cytosine. Yeah. And even that observation was left there uh, with almost no attention paid to it until uh, much later. And only later in the early 80s, uh, people started to ask the question, how are genes programmed? And how can the same gene do so many different things in different contexts? And they went back to understanding how DNA methylation uh, regulates genes. In simplistic way, if the GATC are the letters of the DNA language, uh, methylation are, is the punctuation mark. It makes sense out of letters. It breaks it to words and sentences overwrites and underwrites and puts exclamation marks and question marks yeah. so that the letters become into a language. And so DNA methylation is a very primary epigenetic mechanism that allows DNA to be flexible and to do so much more than it can do just from the sequence itself. Just So it seems like the research in, into epigenetics is just epically catapulted forward and it and it and it seems like that an impetus for that was around sort of the disappointment for maybe lack of a better word that the that the human genome wasn't telling us as much information about disease as we had anticipated and and i mean is that true would you say that that really pushed forward the research into epigenetics or was that happening anyway or uh, no the research into epigenetics originally happened independently the attention to epigenetics um, has changed around 2004. And if you look at the PubMed citations, yeah. uh, you know, you see an inflection in the curve, an exponential <laughs> inflection, uh, where genetics is kind of stable and epigenetics is going up. Yes. yes, yes, I observed too that a lot of those papers are, you know, the the conclusion of the abstract often is for the first time ever we've shown yeah. ba, 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 ba. it's yeah. pretty remarkable to see that. And what happened in 2004 is I think two papers came out and uh, one paper from our group that showed the rat maternal care yes. that maternal care can change DNA methylation in the children. And that yep. was the, you know, the first glimpse into social epigenetics. Yeah. And Randy Jertel, the same year, published a paper where he showed that the maternal diet can change uh, her offspring uh, coat color and, um, you know, obesity and other things. Right. And so, so for the Agouti mice experiment. So for the first time, uh, we, there was an awareness that it's not just the sequence, but it's the context that can be, be very detrimental in how genes work. Right. So you and pointed out, it, your study was amazing. I've actually used it. I've, I've lectured periodically on the HPA axis and have cited that original work where you were looking at, you know, vasopressin and yeah. glucocorticoid influence genetic uh, methylation marks in, in maternal right. care. Um, so you're looking at really clear environmental changes and in, in or behavioral and Jertle was looking at more diet. Yeah. yeah amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they all happened at the same time. And, and you can see how it captured the imagination of many scientists and they started looking at yeah. similar things and, right. and, and then thousands and thousands of papers yeah, have looked into how environment, whether behavioral, dietary, physical, uh, could have long-term impacts. Right. So you'll eat the food today, but the impacts are felt, you know, two generations down the line. And that yeah. has changed the way we think about how genes work. 
absolutely just incredible stuff. All right, I'm going to ask you a few questions about that. I know you've done you've done a number of publications on that, you know, that fateful ice ice storm, and yes. made some really great observations that will that we'll circle back to. But right now, I know you know you your lab has done a number of publications looking at DNA aberrant DNA methylation and cancer. Right. And I know it's an area of big, 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 big right. you know, drug development, et cetera. Right. Can you so can you talk first of all about can you just divine aberrant methylation and then DNA methylation specifically and then you know cancer and maybe expand it to other diseases because it seems to be a player in pretty much everything. Right. I think cancer is a good example of how the field evolved. Uh, I remember when I first proposed that, you know, DNA methylation is changing in cancer. Yeah. I had some prominent scientists call it misguided attempt at scientific humor. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And the idea was that cancer is all genetics. And yeah. till now, there's a tremendous investment in sequencing you know, different tumors, and it's called personalized medicine. And, and for sure, it, it does provide some very important information. It, but the idea was very simplistic. When I was a graduate student and I looked at cancer and I said, the problem in cancer is that these cells are expressing a different genetic program than they should. Yeah. Uh, skin cells should remain in the skin. They should not metastasize to the lung. And so something is going on with the way the DNA is working that changes the program. And yes, you can change a program by changing the DNA, genetics. But if DNA methylation indeed controls the way genes work, it stands to reason that it changes in cancer. This is the easiest way for a cancer to become cancer, is to change the way genes are programmed by DNA methylation. And there are multiple things happening in the DNA of cancer cells. They're so different as far as DNA methylation from the normal counterparts that we can say that thousands of genes alter their methylation pattern. So whereas genetics is looking for one gene that you got mutated, yes, you know, for the, the little leaf in the, in the forest, the whole forest is changing. Yes. And so thousands of genes are now programmed differently. Genes that are supposed to work in the brain are working in the liver. Genes that are not supposed to work in the liver are working. So a whole, and the way I pictured it is that the change is not just one little thing. It's, if you look at a cell as a corporation, the corporation has changed its strategy. It's now doing something else. It's not producing cars anymore. It's producing airplanes. So when a corporation moves from producing cars to airplanes, it's not just changing one gene. It's, yes, the CEO took a decision to change, but everything is changing. And this is what's going on. And so the aberrant DNA methylation in cancer is everywhere. Almost, you know, probably half the genome is changing. Yeah. And, um, and it's just doing different things. It's, it's now doing the stuff that it needs to do in cancer. So the idea was that if we can tap into the machinery that makes this happen, we might cure cancer. Mm -hmm. And what we discover early on is that almost every genetic pathway that leads to cancer goes through DNA methylation. So they have to do that because they will not be a cancer if they don't change DNA methylation. You have to change the program. So it really doesn't make a difference how the cancer started. In the end, it has to change DNA methylation. So therefore, we have to target that. Because by targeting that, notwithstanding what was the cause, uh, we will be able to, to cure cancer. So that's one of the uh, important aspects of DNA methylation in cancer. But if you think about it, almost every disease involves a change in program. Obesity is a change in program, both in the brain and in the fat cells. The brain now doesn't think it's satiated. It thinks it's hungry. That involves changes in gene expression. That involves changes in how genes are programmed. And they're saying the fat cells are now storing the fat rather than burning the fat. That's again a change. And you can take any disease from hypertension to cardiovascular to psychiatry diseases. They're all the same. They all involve changes in gene regulation. And therefore, the question is at, two level, at three levels. First, can we prevent it? 
Why did it happen? Why did cancer cells change the program? Is yeah. it something normal that somehow wasn't balanced properly? And why is it happening? Because it looks like a very sophisticated change. Uh, is it just random noise or is there something that is driving it? And, and we don't know the answer for it. But now there's very much excitement with the immune system. So the immune system has to keep the cancer in balance. Why does the immune system fail in doing it? Did it also change its methylation pattern? Mm -hmm. And why did the methylation pattern change? Did it change because of some signals that came in yeah. uh, by infection, by experience, by other things? Yeah. How is stress connected to it? So that raises a lot of questions about the origins of that change. So now we know where to look. We see that change in gene programming. We can ask ourselves a question, why did it happen? Can we prevent this from happening? The next question is, we can use it as an enormous diagnostic tool because mm -hmm. the methylation patterns provide essentially a fingerprint of the, fate, the cell fate and the cell state. And we can map it. We have now the technology to map it. So we can use it for early diagnostic. We can also use it for follow-up. And yeah. what was suggested early in cancer is now being applied to psychiatry and to other situations. And the third thing is, DNA methylation is controlled by proteins that are druggable. Mm -hmm. And if we can interfere, we might be able to yeah, reverse the situation. The nice thing about epigenetic therapy is if we can reverse it, we'll reverse the underlying cause of the disease, not just a symptom of the disease. Because once we remove that programming, we remove the disease because the disease unless something else happens, we'll not know how to put that program back again. There are a number of, I mean, demethylating agents are already being used clinically, mm -hmm. and there's a yes. whole bunch of them in, in right. various states of you know, trials. Right. And outcome on those? I mean, they're being actively used. And would any comments? On so uh, the current drugs are quite uh, dirty drugs. Uh, so yeah. uh, they're old drugs. Uh, it's interesting, the drug that is now used in the clinic was invented in the 50s by Czech chemists. And really? It also shows you how, how drugs has many lives, uh, and it had many lives. Now it's used almost against blood cancers. Uh, it's not very good against uh, solid cancers. But it's just, I think, uh, because we don't know enough, we're still learning about the system. Yeah. And these drugs are just not very, very specific. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's a tremendous effort now to, uh, to become more sophisticated with epigenetic drugs, but also to learn how to use them. Probably. Yes, more tissue specificity, yeah. I would imagine, and things of that nature. It's, uh, dosing, scheduling. Yeah. And the other exciting thing is, can we use uh, natural products uh, to yes. do the same? Oh my gosh, and, yes. And Go. I think that uh, this is an area of medicine that was abandoned just because of the reward structure of pharmaceuticals. Yes. If you can, it's very hard to get a patent on a, on a uh, natural product, and it's very hard to protect it. And mm. if you want to invest a billion dollar in research, you want to get some sort of reward yeah. and a return on investment. Yeah. And that's a major problem. And society hasn't solved that problem. Right. So there's a bigger incentive for a drug company to develop a new poison than to reinvestigate some safe uh, compounds uh, because there's no return on, on such an investment. Well, yeah. So that's what I've been thinking about in, in my world and, um, you know, clinically. And then, you know, we've also been, been writing about it. I, you know, there's, there's a big movement in integrative medicine to support, quote, methylation, you know, lower homocysteine, people have an MTHFR mutation, right. et cetera, you know, depression, very high dose methyl donors. So right. folate went from micrograms to milligrams, you know, mm -hmm. routinely, we go very aggressively with it, as well as with, you know, methylcobalamin and, you know, all mm -hmm. of the other players. And, you know, as I started to unfold this epigenetic data, especially around, you know, this aberrant hypermethylation happening in virtually every disease, I know hypomethylation paradoxically happens as well. I get it. Yeah. You know, yes. both things are occurring right. in one gene. 
you know, in yeah. one probably relatively close regions. I know the promoters and then, you know, more in the body of the gene. But at any rate, as I started to read this data, it occurred to me, you know, maybe I was not doing my patients a service, especially if they had active cancers, you know, by mm -hmm. pushing methylation. So that was one question, even, even using natural products. But then the, and so as I started to dive that, there and it began to alter my, um, my thinking with regard to my patients, the other data that I began to read about that was incredibly compelling, and I think you're alluding to it now, is the fact that there are these, you know, these nutrients that we've used for millennia that have this sort of methylation balancing or remodeling capability, like um, curcumin or many of the the, the um, polyphenol compounds, curcumin, luteolin, you know, lutein, quercetin, et cetera, all of these active constituents of, you know, foods that are included in any healthy and many traditional diets actually are able to support balancing or remodeling the epigenome in a, in a, in a healthy way. And so, I don't know, I, I have been doing that in my, in my clinical practice now and, and have started to, to write about it and would actually like to research um, research it to, to, to some extent, but are you, I mean, is that what you're talking about? I mean, actually considering some of these things, some of these molecules? Yes, but I think I'm, I mean, the way I would have loved this to be done is a bit different is, is through, you know, um, really uh, scientifically controlled clinical trials. Absolutely. Yep. The problem is they're so expensive to do. And, and the alternative option is to to get some data from clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And if we had a way to organize this, so we can have kind of a meta-clinical trial, yes. just by looking at what happens to people who, who do take these things. Yes. And so may, it might be a new way of doing clinical trials because the classical way might be too expensive. And also with you know, computer technology, with our ability to look at people in very far away places uh, using apps, and yep. it might well be, and I know that there are some companies working on this, which is looking at, uh, you know, at the effects of nutritionals and nutritional supplements on disease in, in this amateur kind of way, but by uh, collecting data from a lot of people that could then statistically be put together and compare it to some control group uh, that was not exposed to these uh, compounds. And uh, yes, yeah. Well, the other thing is, and, and what we've been looking at in our clinic is, um, I mean, seriously, coming from your, your research, looking at behavioral modification of the, of, of the epigenome, and, and then going, looking at exercise, looking yes. at um, exposure to toxins. I mean, you can cast a wide net on putting together a healthy living program that potentially augments the epigenome, you know, very favorably. Um, yes, I mean, there's, yeah. there's evidence that exercise uh, is, is, is working mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that it has changes in, uh, in, uh, on epigenetics. I think there's quite good evidence. Yep. And so when we exercise, it's not just we burn calories. That probably has a very small effect. It's the system uh, says, oh, this guy exercises, so I have to change everything to fit what this guy's needs. And, and these changes are, are most probably good for us. Uh, although perhaps over-exercising is also not good. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's something, something right. that we never, never actually tested formally, right? How much exercising is good and how much exercise yes. is really needed. Uh, and the same is true for metal supplements and, and yes. everything else. It's very and, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, the question is, how would research be done? You know, if we do traditionally through academic or industrial traditional ways of doing medicine, mm -hmm. this will be outrageously expensive to examine. Yeah. And the only reward is that you make people healthier, but that doesn't put money in your bank account and no. doesn't increase your pension funds and things like that. So we need to think about the way uh, of doing these things uh, that is that gives some return on investment, but where the investment is smaller and because we take advantage of natural experiments, like the ice storm was a natural experiment. Uh, you medicating your patients is also an experiment, yeah. uh, but it's never documented. Yeah. It's never 
you know, you have your anecdotal experience and some other practitioner has his, his or her experience, but we don't put it together. And I think today with the technology, the media technology, the social media technology, yes, uh, we might figure out a smart way of putting together all this data and analyze it with the same, you know, rigor that we analyze uh, clinical trials statistically. Yes. Where, we where we have collected, you know, confounder data, other variables, we can do a covariant analysis, and we could perhaps tease apart them. Maybe we have the best clinical experiments in the world going on all the time, but we don't get the data. Yes, that's right. I think now, you know, that we're hopefully moving towards some user-friendly systems model, and then, you know, having cloud data and sort of live real-time collection. I, I think you're right. I very, very, very much want to research this um, and have and have gotten some, I know this is off topic, this is going off topic, but I just have to take advantage of your interest in this, but I would very much like to do a, a trial and did get, and, and have some support. And um, the piece that my, I've been struggling with as, you know, just as a clinician um, is that I don't have ready access to the, epi the, the, the epigenetic analysis, specifically, you know, looking at the regions of hyper and hypomethylation and determining yeah. how, how, I, how we do that. I know some trials just look at this sort of global methylation. No, no, you can do that. And the technology is there. Okay. And, uh, you know, genomic technology has made these things doable. Uh, it, they just cost money. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and yeah, you can you can essentially answer whatever question you want about I, the DNA methylation. Yeah. I, I would I would I would absolutely love to do that. And I think the time is now to start putting our, us right. clinicians to start putting our toes in this pond and collecting those data. Right. So. But I think collecting data from multiple places. And, and, you know, finding some sort of way of, of connecting, linking them mm -hmm. through the media, the available media applications, so that we collect data on everything and that could go into the analysis from lifestyle to food yes. uh, to, uh, to uh, let's say, metal. If we're interested in metal supplementation, I guess that millions and millions of people in the world today are medicating themselves with metal supplements absolutely but we have no idea what happens to them that's right and and so if we could collect all of this <laughs> and you know if one can collect isis across the world yeah. we should be able to collect uh, people who take metal supplements across <laughs> the world yes and then have them be our scientists you know document what's going on measuring things that we decide are important to measure and then eventually sending us a saliva yes and uh and then, you know, we do the methylation analysis, we have their clinical data, and we put together, link their, you know, lifestyle to their medical uh, records. And for example, you know, I think that Sam, uh, Sam, which is a donor of the metal group, yep. is, a, is a very good compound to prevent breast cancer. I have, you know, I have uh, animal experiments going on showing that, uh, liver cancer, and, uh, and, uh, PTSD and, uh, you know, uh, Alzheimer's. And there are millions of people taking them. And I guess some of them, you know, have breast cancer and other things. And if we could collect all of this information to derive conclusions, at least guide us and say, oh, it's worth spending a billion dollars in trying this. Yep. Because I think this is the challenge. I think it's now doable with the convergence of social media, uh, you know, ability to store huge amounts of data and, and, and crunch huge amounts of data. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and the readiness of people to do this, because people are now trained to work with, with this kind of, of And as I said, you know, if evil people can use the media <laughs> to, uh, to do this, right, 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 right. why can't we use it for good purposes? Yes. Um, and actually um, address these questions Critically, right? Rather than, you know, one of the problems with a lot of nutritional stuff, it becomes like a religion and there's never a Bayesian, you know, learning process where we see, we do it, then we see what happens, then we change it and we do it again and then we see what happens and we change it again. So there's a training and machine learning uh, in mm -hmm. this process rather than having it as a religious, you know, 
oh, it's good to exercise. Is it really good? Maybe not always. Maybe. Yes. So yeah. a lot of these things are based on just beliefs or, uh, you know, just it's cool. Yes. And, and so, and people are doing it, but we don't know what happens to them. We never measure that. Yes. It's, we don't yes. have the structure to measure it. It's all very personalized too. I mean, what's, what's a good exercise protocol for you, you know, may be very different for me. I mean, yeah. and intensity level and duration and all of that. But listen, I got it. I just want to circle back to a couple of comments yeah. you just made and then, you know, maybe talk a little bit more generally, because I know this is a new topic for a lot of people, but I'm on board with you. I mean, I am so on board with you and I will, you know, I, it, it will just be great to to share this conversation I'm having with you with with some of my colleagues who are equally motivated in gathering these big big sort of cloud based systems data and see what we can do. Right. <laughs> so I'll keep you. I'm very excited about it. But anyway, I just wanted to talk about so S-adenosylmethionine, as I think most of right. the listeners on this podcast are aware of, is our major universal methyl donor. Right. And um, so you're looking at your data, your, I, as I understand you said, preliminary data in animal studies is for, yeah. it's showing it as a pr protective intervention, you mm -hmm. know, against breast cancer, liver cancer, Alzheimer, PTSD. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. Um, again, underscoring the importance of healthy methylation, sufficient right. methylation activity yeah. would, would be the case in that using CME. So we're, we're supporting active methylation. Now, I just want to ask you though, um, so everybody please understand that, the importance of methylation in, 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 in uh, maintenance of, 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 of fundamental wellness um, prior to the onset of disease. But once, once breast cancer is active, liver cancer is active, and we know that there's aberrant methylation all over the place and there are these regions of hypermethylations, when the, when the, when the tumor is active, do we then regroup and reconsider yes. SAMI, correct? Yes. Okay, all right, all right. I, I, that has been my... Um, and from, yeah, go and ahead. from uh, cell culture, human cell culture, and not just we, I think, oops, Excuse me. We somehow got disconnected. Can you hear me? Happened. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Now okay. it's back. Okay. Yeah. I can hear you. Okay. So we have data from cell culture, uh, you know, human cancers uh, that we can treat with SAMI, and we changed the entire genetic program. You know, we looked at the genome-wide methylation. We looked at genome-wide expression. It's no question. And what's interesting is that for some reason that I don't understand, it prefers cancer cells to change them and causes less damage to normal cells. And, and so, hmm. and, and we know that because people are taking SAMI for now decades and we, yes. we don't have many problems. So obviously it's not very toxic. And you know, and when I want to share this with, with, with journals and others, we always have problems because SAMI is an old stuff, you know? Tell me something new. Tell me <laughs> some new molecule. And my argument is, why do I have to tell you something new if the old stuff is actually better? Yes. And, uh, and, 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 and so we have a misunderstanding of what new is. New is needed if you need better things. But sometimes you can use new techniques like media and, and new genomic technologies to examine old ideas Yes. Uh, and it might be actually extremely good. Yes. And so SAMI, I think, has tremendous potential that was underutilized because it was never tested in a, in a, in a, in a critically acceptable way. You know, because, right. and I tried, I tried to do, you know, a study. I, you know, I convinced a, a colleague to give it to patients with major depression and it worked very well. And then I said, why don't we do a study, a real clinical study? Because if it works on a patient, you never know. Did it work just because, you know, God helped the patient? Or it's just a random, you know, change that happens, you know? Nothing in, in medicine is perfect. Yeah. Uh, you have people with the worst cancers that get cured, but you don't know, is it because of your drug or is it because it's just the statistics? You know, 1% get cured. Yes, right. And, and that's why we need a critical study. And he answered, he said, who's going to pay for it? Yeah. You know, even though the drug is cheap, you can buy it in a, you know, in a health store. 
but you need the nurses, you need the, the hospital, you need to document it, you need the regulatory work. And so we need to find another way of doing it. And, and in the end, he said, who, and the people who sponsor, you know, and granting agencies want to sponsor new stuff because they always have to say we're novel and creative. I think there's tremendous creativity in finding old stuff that actually works. Yes. But uh, this is not the way we understand creativity. And, uh, and drug agents, drug companies will never support it because, because we don't, we're not rewarding them for that, mm-hmm. right? So we're stuck. And, and, but I think uh, there is so overwhelming data with SAMI. The yes. only problem with SAMI is that it's not a poison. And therefore, you can't make money off of it. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but I guess that out there in Chinese traditional medicine, in extracts from cells, yes. uh, there, there's a whole slew of things we can do. And we have now the technology to check it. So um, I can tell you this thing changes my yes. And that's the difference, you see? Yes. And, you know, like 20 years ago, we could guess, we could believe in it. Today, we can actually critically test it. So I think we are ready to, you know, to screen, you know, millions of natural compounds. Yes. And find a balance that can, can actually work. Well, and also, I think in this systems model that we, that we have to embrace and expand our research uh, structures around to honor, you know, we need to look beyond just a single molecule intervention, I think, of course, to, of to, course. to the whole dance of life. You know, of course, of course. Yeah. And we see it everywhere. You know, whatever I do, even for diagnostic, you take one marker, it doesn't work. You take a few, it's amazing. Yes. And so, because systems don't work as single genes. Yeah. They work as systems. And there are multiple ways by which the system can work to get the same output. Yes. And, and therefore, it's never one gene. It's never, um, it's a systemic approach. And, um, and that goes against very much of what we have done in science because science was focused on a reductionist approach on yes. making a knockout mouse with one mutation or a, <laughs> right. better a yeast with one mutation. And, um, right. you know, but life is much more complicated. And yes. We need to deal with it. Do you think, you know, again, circling back to sort of the, you know, maybe the, 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 the disappointment, if I don't know if that's the right word, around, you know, when we completed mapping uh, the human genome, and I, and I see that humorous quote out there where it's less than a grape, but more than a chicken, the number of yeah. our genes, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so we couldn't find this, this reductionistic one gene, one disease, and we yeah. had to really blow up and think about the exposome and all of this, and it just right. seemed to me that we basically answered that we have to you know, embrace this bigger thinking. Of course. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's accepted at a theoretical level, but at the practical level, most scientists were still trained to look yes. for single genes. Yep. And they get very confused when they see, you know, a mixture and they don't believe it and they don't fund it and they don't like it. So it will take some time. Let and, me guess. Well, well, in our world, you know, in this functional medicine integrative world, this is, this is where we think and what we attempt to actualize. And I know there's not, there isn't money for this, but we're certainly always pondering it. And, you know, there are some systems met like, well, this, the, the, in, in, in gig Harbor, I think, or not gig Harbor, in Seattle, the Institute for systems biology, I think that they have some interesting larger projects going on collect, collecting this data. Um, but listen, I want to just ask you a couple questions here. Just, you know, you mentioned saliva as a specimen for analyzing the epigenome. So saliva is, is, is adequate? Yes, and buccal swab are even easy. better. Oh, that's great. Better. Easy. Yeah. It's, super, yeah. it's very, very easy. Anybody can yeah, yeah. do it. <laughs> and it's doable, yeah. No phlebotomy necessary. Yeah. Um, all right, what else? I want to just, you know, we've got so much to cover, but I think we're... Uh, you know, we're heading towards the end here. I just, I want to, I, why don't you talk a little bit, because it was just powerful, such powerful work you've been doing on these behavioral changes. Just maybe give us some of the, actually, no, wait, let me just ask you one question before we go there, and then we'll go there, is, um, in our, so again, in our world, um, integrative medicine, there's um, lots of us and lots of our patients, actually, many of my patients come to me having obtained a 23andMe um, data, yes. single nucleotide polymorphs and thousands, you know, data set of their particular SNPs. And, um, 
there's a lot of emphasis put on these uh, mutations right. um, as, as dictating disease pretty profoundly. And people will take many, many supplements and do, do, do you know, design pretty involved, expensive protocols with really no evidence behind them. And I know there are some genome-wide association studies that are, that, that are pretty good, particularly as they look at groups of SNPs. But I just, you know, in light of really understanding the epigenome, and how it, and I, and I, I know with regard to cancer, the epigenome is a bigger deal than yeah. mutations. I mean, what do you think about this movement towards analyzing and treating or addressing single nucleotide polymorphisms? No, I think it will work on very few rare cases. Uh, you know, there are cases where there is a mutation in one gene that causes cancer, like breast cancer one. Right, yeah. And, and there are retinoblastoma. There are a few. But yeah. I think... Even in these cases, probably a good epigenetic strategy might overcome that because yeah. BRCA1 also has to go through epigenetics. And so yeah. in the yeah. end, you know, even if there is a genetic cause, manipulating the epigenome is worthwhile. Yes. But I think what people don't understand is to actually read the data that they get from 23andMe, the risks are very small. Yes. So... Correct. And and therefore, we should focus on the big risks. And the big risks are probably, in the end, environmental. You know, yes. if you, if you uh, become overweight and you don't exercise, uh, your chances of getting disease, whatever genes you have, are very high. And so, I think notwithstanding, we all carry some, you know, genetic baggage uh, that changes our risk for disease. Uh, you know, slightly. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were not overwhelmingly change our future. But I think we need to focus on the large effects. And, and the epigenetic effects are large. Yes. They happen in every cancer. Yes. You cannot avoid them. And uh, this, these are much more important. Yes. Well, in fact, you know, circling back to the BRCA mutations, we know that environment is massive with them because yeah. the incidence associated with cancer and BRCA mutations, you know, decades ago was much, 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 much lower than it is now. Right. And um, and I and I'm of course you're familiar with the the data around the methyl, you know, hypermethylation of the right. BRCA mutant right. gene. So it doesn't even take a mutation the BRCA right. mutation to shut that, you know, right. suppressor gene down. Right. Um, so I, I, I agree. I agree with you. It makes more, certainly makes more sense to me that the epigenome is playing a bigger role. And I think the thing that's really heartening for me as a, you know, as a doctor is we can, we can do it, do stuff about, you know, supporting mm -hmm. healthy epigenetic um, balance or remodeling, et cetera. It just feels like there's much more I can do as a physician in advising and supporting my patients towards wellness right. when I think right. about that genome versus, you know, genetics. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Let me just, can you talk about the ice storm? I know you've published a whole bunch of papers on it and, you know, maybe just a couple of the, of, of the takeaways from, um, from that really interesting research and then we'll, um, you know, we'll wrap up and, you know, again, yeah. I appreciate your time. Uh, the ice storm of 98 in Quebec, which was, uh, you know, a major natural disaster, uh, allowed us for the first time, to me, to look at the impact of adversity early in life uh, in a random way. See, because most of the criticism of our work and other work in this area is that, let's say we found DNA methylation differences in people who were abused as children. So they had adversity. Now we find the DNA methylation and yes. we connect it to some psychiatry condition or heart condition or something. How do you know that it's causal? How do you know that this methylation change was not caused just by underlying genetic differences? And so everything is genetic anyways, and therefore you don't add much to it. With animals, we can control for it because we can take one group of animals and expose them to adversity and another group not and see what happened. And we know that what happened was because of adversity. It wasn't that because they carried bad genes. It's because they had yes. a bad childhood. Right. So here, the ice storm was a random occurrence. People were inflicted by it, not because of their genetics, not because of their inheritance, not because of their history, just because they happened to live in Quebec. And they were 
uh, damaged in very different ways. So a whole quantitative distribution of how much stress you have. Well, how people, long was it? How many days was this ice storm? I mean, it, it oh, the whole thing took a few, the ice storm was a few days. That's it. But the power loss was, a, could take anything between one hour to six weeks. Okay. So people suffered to different extents. But, but yeah. even still, six weeks is not a ton of time for the no. kind of changes you e saw. Okay. Exactly. Okay. But the stress was significant, but normal stress, right? These are kind of stresses we always go through in life. Yeah. You know, having to move somewhere else, uh, you know, not having power, things like that. But even that, which is, I agree with you, it's not enormous stress. It's kind of moderate stress, had a huge impact on the mothers that were pregnant at the time mm -hmm. and their children. So for the first time, we could look at changes in methylation as a function of a random stress mm -hmm. that we know was not caused by their genetics or by their money or by their inheritance or anything else. Yep. Just randomly, they happen to be in a place where they got more stress than others. And we can ask the question, how does this change methylation in their children 15 years down the line? And we looked at their methylation 15 years down the line, and we found very distinct differences. And the other thing that Suzanne King did, who, who, who was running this study, she looked at uh, health and behavioral parameters. And what we saw was three kinds of health challenges, behavioral health challenges, like very high rate of autism. Wow. We, saw, we saw high rates of autoimmune disease, the immune system, Wow. And, cardio and, and meta metabolic issues, wow. you know, cardiovascular system. So essentially what we saw that a stressful environment really coordinates, you know, three kinds of responses in the body, yep. an immune response, a metabolic response, and a behavioral response. Wow. And if you remember my talk, I talked about the fact that you can't break, you know, psychiatry from physical health. They're coordinated. Yeah. when. When something stressful or threat-threatening happens, it's not just our brain that is involved. We have to recruit everything from the immune system to, to the fat system to the heart. And therefore, mm -hmm. what I believe is early in life, the children are getting this information, life is going to be tough. And they're kind of altering multiple systems to deal with, with hard life. And hard life involves you know, social threat, it involves uh, food threat, lack of food. It involves bacterial infestation. So it prepares for all of this. And this is why I told you, you can do epigenetics, not necessarily in the brain, even if you want to look at the brain, because the entire body is responding together. Yeah. And therefore, measures in, in saliva could be uh, telling us about something that happens, not just in saliva but in the brain and the fat tissue and other places. Yes. Wow, that is just, that's amazing. Thank you. That's just very, very interesting. Well, I, I want to just ask you, though, on that. I know some people will hear this, especially, you know, moms or women conceive, you know, getting ready to conceive or families, et cetera. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of anxiety. Well, geez, you can't avoid stress. Right. Um, and you certainly can't do anything if you happen to live through an ice storm. I mean, that's, you yeah. know, random in a way uh, to an extent but um so what about you know what about, and, and actually the other people that I, I so so piggyback on this was a really interesting study i read where they gave mice uh, a single high glucose meal or exposure you know i think they injected them with a whole bunch of glucose or something like that or maybe they gave them a high glucose meal and then they showed that epigenetic changes occurred for I think quite a while they showed yeah. differential methylation patterns for up to six days. I mean, I guess my, my question around all of it is, okay, so we initiate these, you know, these aberrant changes that, that are disease promoting, but now we want to reverse them. And these right. women who are pregnant want to not have their babies be at higher risk for autism, et cetera, because they right. don't through stressors. And so again, you know, so what do we do? I mean, what would you say about how we're, you know, they're going to support. So them. I think I would love to have two kinds of tools uh, that I think the new science of epigenetics can develop. <laughs> One set of tools will be to find the people who are at risk because 
humans are remarkably resilient. Yeah. We should remember that. Yeah. Our system, our epigenetic system knows how to deal with adversity. And in most cases, it will deal with it well. So the epigenetic response will not promote disease. It will promote resilience. Yes. And I think this will happen in 90% of the cases, hopefully, and or 70%. But we want to identify those who somehow miss that resilient response and are vulnerable. And so I am hoping that one day, uh, you know, we or our colleagues or the scientific uh, community will be able to develop DNA methylation diagnostics that we can mm. maybe at the placenta, mm. maybe at the um, you know early cord blood, maybe later. Right. Find babies that they are at risk, um, and you know, as you said, many things could have happened during pregnancy. Yes. Had a fight with your spouse. Uh, you know, you lost a parent or a, or a close relative. Uh, you were fired, you know, uh, you lost money in the stock market. So there's a lot of things that can cause Always, stress. yeah. And all we care about, so I would see the modern psychiatrist, rather than talking to the patient about all the terrible things that happened during the pregnancy, mm-hmm. just doing a simple text mm. and seeing, oh, there's something, something happened. And I really, I'm not sure I want to know whether, you know, it was sexual abuse or physical abuse or verbal abuse or natural abuse. Your child is at risk. Yeah. It's like, you know, your physician telling you you have high blood pressure. You're at risk. You know, we don't know why it was caused, but we know that high blood pressure is something we, take, we need to take care of. And at that point, the question is, okay, so let's say we have kids at risk. How can we intervene very early uh, to prevent that risk from manifesting itself? Yep. And, um, and so I think we need to think about, you know, three kinds of intervention a behavioral intervention, mm-hmm. some sort of an enrichment environment that kind of uh, will send the, the opposite signals to what was sent. And, and I just want to hit this home to our listeners that will indeed augment the epigenome as right. powerfully as some of the other interventions. Right. The behavioral piece is extremely important. Right. And because through behavior, we can, uh, you can tap into the chemistry of, of the body and, yep. and the body itself will take care of things. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes we might have to supplement, you know, have a nutritional yep. strategy. Yep. And uh, the third strategy, sometimes it has to be pharmacological. depends on the risk uh, and, uh, you know, the, and the cost and benefits of each of these. And so, you know, at, at certain points, unfortunately, you need pharmacology because, you know, uh, well, either okay. we don't know. Either we don't know how to do it uh, or the system is so convoluted that you need a, a real push uh, to yes. change it. And I think all three are possible. Yep. And, and I think they will happen. Uh, I think, uh, you know, research, uh, clinical research, and hopefully one day a public experience uh, will kind of join together. So our clinical research will not be just, you know, controlled clinical trials but what actually happens in the wild, you know, amongst people uh, who are exposing themselves to these different interventions and how they work. I'm with you. That is so exciting. Jeez. Well, that's a good place, I think, for us to end. Boy, Dr. Safe, again, just an honor to have you on uh, Frontiers. You're welcome. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care.